and welcome to another edition of Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This would be Brian in the great state of New York, USA, and with me as always... Is Lauren from the even better Swansea. Uh, you know, those fighting words, if you're saying Swansea's better than New York. Well, I think I'd win a fight against you, Brian. You probably would. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I've had a busy couple of days. Um, I recorded, um, well, yes, um, I was asked by Ansel, if you remember um, Ansel, our, of our guest on. Uh, um, sure. He asked me to read a science fiction. Yes. He asked me to read a short story for his science fiction podcast, and I did that. Should I be insulted that he never asked me to read one? <laughs> They're only very short stories. Like no! About ten minutes long. And he knew I'd probably <laughs> ramble on about things and like improvise. But uh, No, I was talking to Ansel actually the other day. He's going to be coming back on the show next month. And we're going to be talking about Fantastic. a different topic, a surprise topic with Ansel. But he will be joining us again. And... Uh, yeah, it's been a busy uh, busy few days here, too, even though we haven't been recording. We were, you know, on that everyday recording schedule for a while, but, hey, we're back. Yeah. And it's pretty much yeah. going to be starting up again because we're recording today, we're recording tomorrow, we're doing two shows the week after that, two shows the week after that, already getting things lined up for, for next month, um, I've got three other people who've already responded we're setting up shows it's just getting busy 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 not to mention i'm still going to get robert anderson to come on and talk about your favorite syphilis oh yes that'd be fun and it, this is unrelated from syphilis but i do have to ask you this did you watch that documentary i told you to watch about Orson wells I, you know it wasn't available on mine really yeah See, the UK and the US release things at different times on their streaming services. Well, it's called They'll, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. And um, it was fantastic. It's about, um, it's about his unfinished film. He had a lot of unfinished films. Yeah. But, uh, this, is a <laughs> this is about the other side of the wind. Yeah, I, um, I love Orson Welles. I, I want to do a show on Orson Welles. I've been yes. trying to get Peter Bogdanovich to come on the show, but he just won't answer my damn emails. Mm. So if you're but listening, it, Peter, if you're listening or anybody you know is listening, tell Peter to answer my emails and we'll we'll do an Orson, uh, Orson Welles episode with the great Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, but it was amazing um, to, to listen uh, uh, about the other side of the wind. And I think... Um, I, I, towards the end of the um, documentary, they said that maybe um, The Other Side of the Wind isn't actually a film, but a documentary about the making of a film. So, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> <but> I le- <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty, pretty much typical Orson Welles. Orson was so... Oh, God, he was such a genius, but he was such an asshole. I mean, he, every, you know... He reached the greatest heights you can reach in theater and radio and movies, and he pissed it all away because of his own, you know, 
his own narcissism. Unlike a lot of people screwed over by the industry, he wasn't screwed over by the industry. He screwed himself over. I I, I can't dislike him though because he was oh, on no, the I Muppet. Love him. <laughs> he, he got <laughs> he got them the, the what was it the standard famous person contract. <laughs> and you know, yeah, I love that he would do those wine commercials and the Nostradamus documentary and things. And, you know, I, I always like to point out to people that his first official film was Citizen Kane, considered by many people the greatest film ever made. And his last official film was Transformers the movie, not those live-action big-budget ones. I'm talking about the cartoon one, where he was the voice of a planet. Wow. Could there be anything other for Orson to do? No. No. But, I mean, it's just so Orson Welles. Um, you know, there's some movies that he was in as a, as an actor only that are criminally underrated, and his performance is criminally underrated. Films like, um, there's a great film with Oliver Reed called I'll Never Forget What's-His-Name that uh, is almost a forgotten film, and it should really be rediscovered because it's, it's amazing, and Welles is fantastic in it. I'm not saying we should go out and watch The Witching again because that's god-awful, but... Wells was no, but everybody should go on YouTube and watch the outtakes of the wine commercial, of the champagne commercial, where he is seven sheets to the wind. Oh, do you know he was supposed to be the voice of Darth Vader too? That's that's upsetting now because I kind of want to, I want to be in that alternative universe to see what that was like. Well. that's who was originally it was written for and scripted for and then they realized he's way too recognizable a voice because at the time james earl jones wasn't as famous so they went with a voice that was less recognizable Mm -hmm. it would have been interesting i think so i think he was probably also demanding top billing over uh over some of the other great actors that were well, Can you imagine him wanting top billing over Alec Guinness? I was going to say, you Sad. got Alec Guinness and Peter Cushing, and yeah, I don't think Orson would have got top billing, but he would have wanted it. Yeah. Yeah. And he probably would have rewritten all of um, George Lucas's dialogue anyway. Did you, do you remember the animated series The Critic? No. It was... Uh, it was an animated series, I believe, on the Fox Network years ago, and John Lovitz played this animated film critic. Well, there was an episode where Orson Welles' ghost kept popping up and, like, trying to sell products. First, he was doing the uh, the reading of someone's will as a ghost. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, I was just listening to you. Yeah, Cleo decided to knock everything over on the table. That's because she's a cat. But, uh, yeah, look up uh, on YouTube at some point The Critic with Orson Welles. Oh, it's hilarious. Um, yeah, but I have watched one of the compilations of all his adverts, and he did he did one for a board game. So did Vincent Price. Yeah, but Vincent Price, you can imagine doing something like that. But you can't really imagine Orson Welles. Oh, Orson Welles would, was the biggest whore in Hollywood. He would do anything that would pay him a dime, but that's because he was trying to self-finance all these projects. So it's it's sad and pathetic, but admirable at the same time. 
But it was Orson Welles, so nobody cared. Yeah, and it was big, giant, fat Orson Welles. <laughs> you know, you forget, people forget he was very, you know, handsome and young at one point. Aren't we all? No, I've always looked like the fat Orson Welles. <laughs> With the beard and cigar. <laughs> That's me. Well, it's a pity that you never got to meet him. I think he'd appreciated the cigar you'd have given him. I think Orson Welles would have appreciated this kind of show. Because it's not, like I tell people, it's not a stuffy history show. It's, let's shoot the shit and have fun with it. <laughs> but the thing is, is he did come on, charmed everybody, and then ended up as a co-host or taking over. Oh, yeah. Well, he would not co-host. He would have just taken over. Yeah. He, he would have edited it as well, you know. He's a very good editor. He's very de- decisive. <laughs> early in his career, surrounded himself with such great people. And he learned so much from them because he wanted to learn everything and be the best at everything. But, uh... Oh, Orson. Indeed. There'll never be another Orson. I don't know. Pinky and the Brain had (laughs) an Orson. They were the best thing of the Animaniacs, and I'm glad they had their own show in the end. Oh. God, Orson Welles was a genius. He was, and I think that's why he had a lot of un, um, unfinished projects, because, you know, it, it's very easy with somebody for a mind as active as Orson's was to um, to get bored with something or to have so many ideas that he's got to get them on paper now or move on to the next project, because there's, you know, there's something in stagnation. That, and Orson was a habitual liar, and Mm -hmm. I'm sure he didn't keep his lies straight all the time with people and may have burned a lot of bridges that way. I think he did, because there was one one of the people that was involved with um, The Other Side of the Wind who became a very famous director, and, and I can't remember the name at the moment. That's how famous they were. But they were very famous. Um and he, he, they sort of made fun of him on, he and another person made fun of him on television. And he wrote how disappointed he was and, you know, it was sad to find out what he really thought of him. So Orson replied by sending him two letters. One was, I'm very sorry, um, you know, that you feel that I betrayed the friendship. You know, I didn't mean to do that. And the other one so it was along the lines of, you deserved it. And he goes, just take whichever one you want. <laughs> oh god I love and I'd love to have that le- I'd love to have that level of moxie arrogance you know just I don't care what you think of me think what you like about me yeah I'd have you know that level of just I don't care <laughs> and he didn't it doesn't st- no <laughs> he really didn't no and it's funny because they say he was a nightmare to work with on a lot of these like shit projects that he would do because you know, you're Orson fucking Wells, and here's these inferior directors telling you what to do. How the hell are you going to tell Orson Wells what to do and him take you seriously if you're nobody? With that ego of his? Nah. Yeah, I just don't... I just... I just think they, um, they, they didn't approach it properly. I think if you were going to be a young director that worked with Orson Wells, it should have been okay. What do you think you should do? You know? Well, I, you know, I think this, but I'd really, I'd really appreciate your input because, you know, you're an auteur. 
well, you know, kid gloves. But but Orson had that ego, too. And if there was anybody else with an ego, it was downhill. I mean, you, you've heard the famous stories of Casino Royale. That uh, Sellers and yeah. Wells butted heads so much that their scenes had to be filmed separately with body doubles for each of them. That's why you never see them in the frame together. You'll see the back of one of them and the front of the other. But they couldn't be on set together. I mean, yeah. He was a dick, but he was a brilliant dick. He was a charming one as well. He was. You can't give. You can't take that away. Oh, you know, I am. Uh, I got. Uh, I got a couple things I got to mention. Oh dear! What are they now? Well, apparently, we we got a little naughty. On a couple episodes, and um, again, my mother wants me to say, you are the most closeted naughty girl in the UK, because she hears you giggling at all these dirty jokes. So is this just basically your mother telling me off? No, she's proud of you. Oh, I thought I thought somebody was telling me off. No, she's like, let your freak flag fly. Don't, don't <laughs> hide it. <laughs> I love your mother. She's amazing. Speaking of amazing, the guest we have coming on tonight. Wow. Yes. Um I am so excited that he actually agreed to do this show because you know, I, this guy wrote a book that uh I, I just fell in love with when it came out and you know, devoured the book. Um and and, and, I, and this this episode is a little bit more for me than you, Lauren, because we're going to be discussing the history of Jewish comedy, which in many ways shaped American comedy far more than it shaped British and European comedy. But I got Professor Jeremy Dauber of Columbia University agreed to come on the show and discuss his book, the Jewish Comedy, A Serious History, is the name of the book. Sounds very interesting. Oh, it's going to be... It's gonna, it's gonna be, it, it, oh, it's gonna be hilarious, and, and you know, and and it's a serious scholarly look at comedy because, uh, as any comedian will tell you, comedy is a very serious business. Um, that's why it takes a special kind of performer to be a comedian. A lot of comedians can pull off dramatic roles, but it's very rare you see a dramatic actor play a good comedic role. But I think we better get on to our. Uh, <clears throat> Today in history. History, history, history. Mm. Is it your turn to go first? It is. And uh, this is uh, Today in History for August 4th. Mine, I remembered how much you loved that baseball one I did about uh, Ted Williams spitting at the fans. Ah. So, Today in History... August 4th, 1909, umpire Tim Hurst starts a riot in a stadium by spitting in the face Philadelphia A's second baseman Eddie Collins after Collins questioned one of his calls. Two weeks later, Tim Hurst was banned for life from baseball for spitting in the face of Eddie Collins and starting a riot. Interesting, 
Remember the 1919 World Series we did the episode on about uh, all the banned players? Eddie, yeah. Eddie Collins was on that White Sox team and was one of the few players not banned. So not only was he around the eight-man band for the Chicago White Sox, nine, if you count the pitcher that was banned the next year, but he's also involved in the incident that got an umpire banned for life in 1909. He should have also been kicked in the balls for spitting at someone. <laughs> I can't believe you just said balls. Balls. Oh, now top that one for a day in history. <clears throat> Mine is from the 4th of August, 1265, the <laughs> Battle of Evesham. English Prince Edward beats Simon de Montfort the Younger. Did he spit at him? No. <laughs> oh, but can you imagine? That's disgusting. Yeah. Spitting at someone. If someone spat at me, I'd kick them in the balls. <laughs> what if it was a girl? I'd kick her between what God gave her. <laughs> Are you saying you'd kick her in the hoo-hoo? Yes. Yes, I would. <laughs> they probably don't use the term hoo-hoo in the UK, do they? No. But the thing is... Snarch? is, is Stop it. <laughs> um, but the thing is, you know, it, I know they didn't have the Spanish flu, but, you know, they had other other viruses and things that could have been passed on by spitting. It's just, you know, tuberculosis. Disgusting. Well, they did kick him out for life. Yeah, but that doesn't stop that poor person possibly getting ill by being spat in the and, face. And I don't think he was really kicked out for spitting on him. Like I said, that's just part of baseball. I think he was actually kicked out because it started a riot. You know what shocks me, Lauren? That I said balls. <laughs> that you said balls is shocking, but uh, um, we're going to get right in from a lot of men saying, can you please have Lauren say balls more often? But <laughs> what shocks me... <laughs> is that neither of us chose for the day in history that uh, today in history in, in 1892, Lizzie Borden was arrested. Yeah, but she was innocent. Well, she was found innocent. Well, that's all you need. She was found innocent. That means she didn't do it. Well, yeah, but she got a nursery rhyme out of it. Come on. Yeah, no, she, and she also got people to leave her alone out of it as well, which is amazing. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> like the ultimate introvert. The funny thing <laughs> is, a, lo a lot of our listeners who are friends of ours through the true crime um, groups of researchers are going to be really disappointed that we didn't choose Lizzie Borden. That's right, no Lizzie Borden, and uh, it's all about spitting umpires spitting on people and uh, battles fought without spitting, uh. and threats of getting kicked in the balls. Those empty threats, because everybody involved in the conversation where I would have kicked balls is no longer alive. That's true. But speaking so. of balls, we are going to talk about some of the ballsiest people that ever walked the face of the earth. And that is the Jewish comedians. So basically, and listeners, it's an hour of Brian telling everybody how much he loves the Marx Brothers. Well, well, I'm sure we will get into the Marx Brothers a little bit because everyone knows I am a, I am, I am a Marxist, a true Marxist in the Harpo sense. 
I thought you'd have been a Groucho. I, you know, it's funny because it's actually two Jewish comedians that I consider my uh, personality, yin and yang. And it's Harpo Marx and Lenny Bruce, one who never spoke and one who said way too fucking much. <sighs> but those are my two comedy gods. Yeah, no, I, I'd, have thought, I'd have thought you'd have been a Groucho with a cigar and everything. Oh, I am a Groucho guy, don't get me wrong, but uh, Harpo is my... Uh, my <laughs> if I had a spirit animal and it was human, it would be Harpo Marx. Fair enough. All right, so I think it's time to start up. It's the Magic Interview Box. <laughs> I love that little jingle. And let me fire it up and get him on the line. And, Lauren, I got him. Oh, Fantastic. Folks, you are in <laughs> for a treat tonight because... I have Professor Jeremy Dahmer of Columbia University on the line. And I know normally you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, university professor, but he is the professor of Yiddish language, literature, and culture. And he wrote a book that, I know I say this a lot, but this book is one of my all-time favorite books, Jewish Comedy, A Serious History. And anybody who knows anything about comedy knows Jewish comedy is where it's at. So we are so thrilled that you could join us, Professor Dauber. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. You got to excuse Lauren because she's from the UK and they have a different sense of humor than uh, than we Americans. <laughs> it's superior. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I grew up among other things on uh, you know Monty Python and Blackadder reruns. Spent my graduate school at Oxford, so I'm 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 a big fan of the British comedy as well. So, you know, that's a good starting point. That uh, Jewish comedy dates as far back as recorded time, pretty much. Uh, well, at least Jewish recorded time. <laughs> Why is it that? Yes, you can't see me on the phone, but I'm nodding. Yes, that's right. Yes, I yes. <laughs> Why? America really latched on to the Jewish comedy more so than than England or the UK. Uh, w- w- why do you think that is? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, and I, I would first say that I don't hold myself out as an expert on British comedy, just a fan. Um, but uh, I think that, it, you know, it, it, it has something to do with different kinds of cultural institutions uh, that gave rise to, uh, you know, where, where the comedy comes from. So, uh, you know, in America, uh, a lot of the institutions of mass culture and particularly, you know, comedy culture really come from the bottom. There were low barriers to entry, uh, you know, when the birth of movies and television uh, and, and, you know, stand-up in a lot of ways. And so that allowed people who were being, uh, you know, excluded from other kinds of societally high-status endeavors you know, to make their way in. Um, my understanding is, and I'm happy to be corrected here, that for certainly for many decades in Britain, you know, if you really were going to be part of the comedy establishment, you really came through a, a much more elite pattern. You know, you went to Oxbridge, you were in Footlights, uh, you got a job in the light comedy, or you got a show at light comedy in the BBC. You know, so this this is a very kind of different set of uh, settings, and it allowed different constituencies uh, you know, to come to the fore, both with very, very great amounts of talent, obviously. But, but you know, they were different paths. Uh, and I think that very frequently, 
you know, this is something I try and talk about in the book, very frequently we kind of uh, overlook some of these institutional factors uh, in the role of the comedy that we all enjoy because it's not just, you know, some brilliant person, but it's how they get published or how they get, uh, you know, a, you know airtime or what have you. Uh, and so that becomes a big factor in who gets uh, their voice out there. So basically that's a nice way of saying they got Shakespeare, we got Gallagher and Sheen. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I think that... Uh, you know, there there are a lot of Shakespeare. You know, a lot of Shakespeare. There were the Yiddish the Yiddish theater was very famously and, and only quasi comically said, "We do Shakespeare. We just translate and improve him." Right? That's sort of what they say. <laughs> um, you know, he comes out better in Yiddish. Say, you know, say the, the Yiddish theater deal. Um, I, I do think that uh, you know, you you have tremendous talents. Uh, you know, who uh, I think are underheard because they they originally were published in you know, sort of minor languages, Jewish languages. So someone who I wrote a biography of uh, before I wrote this Jewish comedy book, this, this Yiddish writer named Shalom Aleichem, he's known universally through his greatest creation, who is Tevye the Dairyman, who, of course, uh, you know, is a, is a worldwide name, but that's only through uh, the American musical adaptation Fiddler on the Roof, and not through his short stories, which... You know, putting up against Shakespeare, that's a hard level for anybody, but he's certainly a world-class writer, uh, and, and I would put him up against sort of, you know, any of the world great writers, too. And because he wrote in Yiddish, you know, his, his literature is still, to this day, less well-known. Plus, I can't see Topol playing Macbeth. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wouldn't venture to guess uh, how, he would, how he would do it, Macbeth. But, you know, all these great comedians, they always want to play the tragedians. That's sort of sometimes that's part of the comedy. One of the uh, really fascinating elements of the book is that you break down Jewish comedy. Is there's seven strands of Jewish comedy? Well, you know, one of the things that I, I, I you know, when I started talking to people over the years, teaching the, uh, you know, teaching this in, at Columbia University and giving public lectures, you know, people would say, "Well, I know what Jewish comedy is. You know, it's this, right? Jewish comedy is." Uh, a response to persecution or Jewish comedy is like, uh, you know, intellectual playfulness. That's because Jews are the people of the book. So, so-called and all of that. Uh, and, you know, because I'm, let's call it an academic and a kind of a smart aleck, I would immediately sort of my response would be, well, you know, you say it's this, but there's this case that shows clearly that that, that, that doesn't have anything to do with that. Uh, and so eventually I started saying, well, what are the kind of broad categories that you can kind of group Jewish comedy uh, into, uh, keeping in mind that obviously great works of mastery, uh, of comic mastery, you know, are, are supped from a number of these different categories. So that's what I decided to do, and, and in trying to structure all of this big, you know, mess of funny stuff that Jews have said over thousands of years in many continents, I tried to sort of separate them out a little bit to help the reader. Yeah, and, and Jews have said a lot of funny things. <laughs> I, I, I'm i a Gentile who grew up watching and listening to Jewish comedy to the point that I remember being three and four years old walking around saying things in Yiddish because I didn't know that what <laughs> Jewish comedy was different. And um, I do have to say, just for the record, I am wearing a 1939 Hank Greenberg throwback jersey right now, so I think I'm an honorary Jew tonight. <laughs> That is in Yiddish, we would call it yichus. You know, you have, uh, you have a special lineage, you have a special connection. Yeah, so that's, that's great. 
Um, I, you know, look, I, 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 I think that one of the things that happened, certainly in America, is that because sort of Jewish comedy was so woven into the DNA of emerging American mass culture, Jewish humor became American humor in some deep fundamental ways. It certainly became a, a large part and parcel of it. So it really is almost impossible to talk about American comedy without talking about Jewish comedy. Uh, and, you know, an American comedy has, in turn, been so influential, after, uh, certainly after the Second World War, you know, in shaping what the world thinks of as entertainment. So I think, you know, it's really built in there. There's no question. And, and, and Lauren, you, you could speak to this. A lot of British comedy is really anti-establishment humor. And a lot of Jewish comedy is self-deprecating humor. Um, I, I don't know if it's... I don't know if a lot of it is anti-establishment. We do like taking fun of ourselves and our heritage. I mean, that's why Blackadder works so well. Is that it takes a look at you know, um, different eras of history and sort of exaggerates them and makes them funny and makes us see it in a different way. So, I don't know. We, we can be very self-deprecating, I think. And I think that, you know, one of the things in any culture is that they all have their own establishments. So, you know, you have, uh, you know, one, and, and that comedy, I think, is like water and it flows in through whatever channels it has. So in Jewish comedy, for example, you have comedy in the Talmud, which is presented by rabbinic establishment in a way of accentuating its own points, sort of providing a safety valve to kind of keep the establishment going. And then, as you say, also in Jewish comedy, you have subversive anti-establishment, you know, satire or things like that, sometimes in the service uh, of, of creating a new order, sometimes in the service of you know, just sort of uh, try to topple down the old order. Uh, and I think, you know, again, this is not my area, but, you know, it strikes me that in, in British comedy, you have a lot of comedy that may gently jibe at the establishment, but in the sake of really maintaining the same proprieties. Uh, and then some that is much more genuinely anarchic. Uh, I think a lot of societies have all of those things sort of cheek, cheek by jowl uh, next to each other. And Jewish comedy is certainly uh, no exception to that. No, and Jewish comedy, like you said, is American comedy now. It's amazing how it's really snuck into every aspect of American comedy. And, but yet, you don't hear good rabbi jokes anymore. Can you give me a good <laughs> rabbi joke? Well, uh, you know, one of my favorite jokes, and I think you're right that a lot of these jokes are very much, I mean, I'm a scholar of this stuff, all, you know, and, and, and so a lot of it is very historicized. I mean, you can really put it in a particular time and place. So the, one of my favorite jokes uh, is a joke about uh, a rabbi who, uh, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, right, the holiest of all days, he decides, you know, I'm done with all this, and he goes, you know, I, I, need, I need the day off. I've, I've done this for 20 years, whatever. And he takes, uh, you know, his golf clubs, and he goes out to the golf course uh, instead of going to synagogue on his holy day. He goes to play golf, and the you know he he tees up maybe a little nervously. He tees up on the first hole, and you know it's a hole in one, right? Best possible outcome for those people listening who don't know how to play American golf, right? Hole in one or golf, 
you know, second hole, hole in one. Third hole, hole in one. You can't believe this, right? Best, best golf game ever played. 18 holes, every single one of them is a hole in one. And the, you know, up above in heaven, the angels are looking at God. And they say, God, clearly this is a matter of divine intervention that you've done this. But how can you do this? What is this about reward and punishment? The man, you know, uh, betrays his congregation. He betrays the rules of Jewish law. Uh, he, he goes out and plays golf. And, you know, he gets uh, the perfect game. And God smiles and strokes his beard and says, yes, it's true. He did, in fact, get a perfect game of golf. But let me ask you something. Who is he going to tell about it? <laughs> and that, to me, is the triumph of a certain kind of American Jewish uh, attitude, right, which is the triumph of a certain kind of Jewish sensibility of talk over uh, strict legislation, right, as well as a time in which American religiosity was allowing for this to be an actual historical possibility. You couldn't have, forget about golf, but you couldn't really have told this joke in the Eastern European shtetls of the late 19th century. It would have been anathema. But in a time when observance was rapidly becoming more of a matter of choice rather than a matter of social, you know, only a matter of social stigma rather than a member of excommunication or something like that, you know, you had this option. So it's in that tension that the joke is able to live. So that's, you know, what I'm talking about, about historicizing that kind of joke, which, of course, kills it a little bit. But, but it's one of my favorite rabbi jokes. I love rabbi jokes. Now, Lauren, do you have um, a familiarity in, in the UK with Jewish comedy? Um, not really. Well, you know, and I think it's been, you know, when I've done talks in, in, in London, I mean, you know, you have a, one, a David Baddiel uh, reviewed the book for the Times Literary Supplement, and he, uh, I think you could say, he, you know, he ended it by saying, you know, there was a great disappointment in him that, that he wasn't in the book. That was his big problem with the book, which I accepted. Um, but I think, and I think that, uh, you know, it does speak to this fact, though, that there is some kind of uh, different track, and it's a much smaller track of Jewish comedy in, in England. Uh, you know, you have writers like Howard Jacobson, and, you know, 100 years before you have Israel Zangwill, you have individual members, uh, uh, John, uh, you know, uh, uh, that are that are this, but it, there's not. I think it's fair to say the same kind of critical mass that created a movement uh, that that you, that you know you could describe in America or in you know Yiddish-speaking Eastern Europe, certainly, or anything like that. So I think Martin's fair enough. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Although a lot of people did think Chaplin was Jewish. They did. They did. Uh, and, you know, Chaplin was asked about it, and at least according to the story, he said, I'm sorry, I don't have that honor, uh, you know, when they asked him whether or not he was Jewish. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, that is also one of the things that's at the basis of one of those strands of Jewish comedy I talked about, which is this blurred nature of what exactly Jewish identity is, you know, for in many places and you know, especially in modern circumstances, the question of what Jewishness looks like is a complicated one. Um, and it's possible for people to be believed that they're Jewish when they're not, or people to be uh, thought they're not Jewish when they are, or to kind of, uh, you know, pretend, and this was certainly true in the days of American entertainment, the early days of American entertainment, to pretend they're not Jewish, but leave kind of hints 
that they are. Uh, and that was the case of one of the most famous groups of American Jews in early film comedy, the Marx Brothers. My favorites. Who, in many cases, right, ostensibly, uh, you know, are not really Jewish in the movie. Um, but you could argue are, are giving these little hints of being Jews playing various ethnic disguises. Um, and sometimes the grease paint slips, you know, and the, the, the true ethnic identity comes out. And, you know, most people who weren't Jewish or who weren't, uh, you know, wearing a Hank Greenberg jersey, you know, might not have called it, you know, paid attention to that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, other people certainly would have. You know, I also thought I was Jewish for a while there because my grandmother pretended to be Jewish. But I found out later it's just because she was trying to bang a canter. <laughs> well, there you go. Everybody has reasons. That's all I would. Everybody, uh, <laughs> you know, um, I, I look. I, you know, I, I do think that you have, um, you know, all the way back. I mean, as as you know, uh, Brian from the book. One of the things I say that is that you can trace a lot of Jewish comedy all the way back to the Bible, and particularly to this, to the Book of Esther. Um, and the Book of Esther, for those people who are listening to the podcast who don't remember you know, revolves around a certain kind of disguise and masquerade. The way that the Queen Esther saves her people is by pretending to not be Jewish until at a very crucial and dramatic moment she reveals her Jewishness. And that revelation is really what saves the day. And if you think about almost any kind of comedy, Shakespeare is a great example here, you know, um, so much of the turning point of a comedy which in Shakespearean terms is what all's well that ends well, right? That's what a comedy is. Right? Revolves around the unmasking of disguise, uh, and that really is built in again to the DNA of what Jewish comedy is: is that disguise of identity, that revelation of identity, the claiming of one's Jewishness proudly. So that I think is an important part of it. Yeah, one of the things I always found particularly interesting about. Jewish comedy, as I got older and started understanding it, was, especially early comedians, you know, a lot of them changed their name, never admitted to being Jewish, um, yet sometimes were over-the-top overtly Jewish, and then the Borscht Belt came along where it became, yeah, we're Jews, deal with it. Well, yes, I mean, it was interesting, right, because uh, I think you're 100% right about the phenomenon, right? So there are all these Jews who... Uh, are in sort of that early generation of mass culture. And, you know, they changed their names, and uh, right? And it was this sort of what I call in the book, and other people got you know, this kind of peekaboo Judaism, right? Where, you know, people in the know know, and people who don't don't. So w- one of the most famous examples is that of this radio and then television comedian, Jack Benny, who was, in the 40s, was absurdly famous. He was the most recognized voice on radio. The second most famous recognized voice on radio was... Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president of the United States, right? So he was huge there. But it's quite clear that even though he did all sorts of comedy on that show in which all, any Jewish listener said, this comes out of his Jewishness, um, he was famously, you know, this is perpetuating a, a false Jewish stereotype, but he was famously cheap, for example, on the show. Um, but it seems quite clear from his writer's memoirs that the vast, vast majority of Americans listening to the radio did not think of Jack Benny as a Jew. They simply didn't, that we just have that as information. So, you know, it's this interesting phenomenon. And then, as you say, you get to the Borscht Belt, but the Borscht Belt, of course, 
w- was was founded based on restrictions for Jews to be able to get into Gentile hotels, right? So they had to create their own kind of hotel system, their own food system, their own entertainment system. And so you have this flourishing of proud Jewish comedy, but it's proud Jewish comedy in an ecosystem that sort of says, well, we're proud because nobody else is letting us in. <laughs> um, and it's only when, you know, uh, that, 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 that community, that ecosystem moves its way into television and then kind of goes out over the airwaves that it begins to kind of change the situation. Yeah, it, it's funny, uh, referencing the Marx Brothers. Um, yeah. Groucho, there's the famous story where when his son wrote the play, Minnie's Boys, about mm-hmm. the Marx Brothers. And, you know, they, uh, Groucho asked him, who's playing my mother? And uh, he said, Shelly Winters is going to play her. And Groucho said, I will not have that Jew play my mother. <laughs> and Arthur said, well, but I... Dad, last time I checked, Grandma was Jewish and so are the Marx Brothers. And his response was, of course we are, but everyone thinks we're Italian. You don't want them to hate us. <laughs> well, you know, that's, um, you know, it's funny because on the one hand, all of Groucho's roles in the Mar- in the classic Marx Brothers films are people who are kind of on the one hand they live in fear of being found out right they're always pretending to be somebody else right but on the other hand they're doing a terrible job of disguising (laughs) themselves right so it's this and that's the beauty of this comedy right is you know it's a disguise but it's not a good disguise you know and and that and it goes round and round and that's that's the great art uh of this right groucho really understanding even in this story, right, how to kind of live that tension between, yes, we know, and we don't want to tell anybody, but we kind of also do want to tell people. We want to, you know, we want to at least leave the, the tracks. Yeah, it's also the famous letter he wrote to the country club when they uh, told him the kids couldn't go in the pool because they were Jews. That's right, exactly, yeah, you know. it's, uh, And I think that that idea of not wanting to be members of people who have me, right, that in and out, Right, that is something that very much describes uh, the Jewish condition, and particularly the Jewish comedian's condition in America, because it says, "Look, you know, on the one hand, I yearn for Americanness. I love America. You know, America has been, uh, you know, uh, for the vast majority of, of the 20th and into the 21st century, the most hospitable place in the history of the diaspora for Jews. Um, we want, we love it, and yet, you know, we're not exactly." fully part of it. And that distance allows us to look at it in a kind of view askew that allows us to be great comedians. Um, But if those barriers are collapsed and we're all let into any country club we want, so to speak, you know, do we have the kind of grit in the gearbox that it takes to become kind of the comedians of America? And I think that's a very complicated question that American Jewish comedians uh, and to a certain extent, all American Jews uh, are, are dealing with, uh, you know, as the decades go on. Yeah, and, and it's funny because Jewish comedy, so much of it comes from suffering and pain um, and dealing with that. I remember John Stewart once said that comedy is the way Jews deal with crisis. That no mm-hmm. matter the situation, you know there was a Jew cracking a joke. Well, and I do think, you know, and there's a reason why I put that strand as the first of, 
uh, of the strands of the of those seven strands, right? That that there is a unfortunately, you know, Jewish history is filled with pain, uh, and one of the uh, the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways that Jews dealt with that pain was by trying to gain some kind of mastery over it as a minority, as a diasporic minority, by getting some control when they didn't have that much, by turning it into comedy. Uh, and that is that is 100% the case, and that is true. That said, uh, you know, that is not always what Jewish comedy was. It, Jewish comedy was one way of dealing with Jewish pain, but it was not the only way, and it was not the only kind of Jewish comedy. Uh, but it's certainly a strong thread that goes through from the Bible uh, you know, until now. Yeah, and uh, they are the best at it, but without well, question. You know, I one of the questions that I'm asked the most frequently is some variation of, do you think Jewish humor is unique, and or do you think Jewish humor is superior? And I have no, I have no uh, brief in certain ways with either of those questions. I certainly have no answer to either of those questions. Uh, it, you know, it, there's there's very little way to comparatively judge uh, the qual for me at least the quality of let's say Jewish responses to persecution and African American comic responses to persecution. And I wouldn't, you know, I don't begin to try. Um, I, I I do think that uh, you know in the book I have a very tautological uh, answer to what makes Jewish humor Jewish, which is that it has to do with Jewish history or Jewish people or Jewish texts. And that's tautological, but but you know it also has the benefit, I think, of being accurate. Yeah, and it has the fact that uh, everybody's Jewish mother is funny. You know, it it is fun. My my teacher Ruth Weiss, who is no mean scholar of Jewish humor herself, she used to talk about Fiddler on the Roof in one of her classes, uh, and she you know she she was teaching at Harvard at the time, and she had uh, you know a wide variety of students. And one of her students came to her and said, I don't understand how, how the original stories, the Debbie stories, could be written in Yiddish because the humor is so Japanese. <laughs> and, you know, I think that uh, there are a lot of these things that are, are, are resonate so widely because the specificity is, you know, the grounded specificity sups of the universality of a lot of these questions. Right. Uh, you know, they, so to take your example, sort of the depiction of Jewish mothers as a particular type, and you can pick the various poisons that they've been accused with over the years. Um, you know, there are a lot of other groups that have uh, not dissimilar portraits rendered comically of mothers. Um, so I don't know that I would call that unique. I would say that there have been wonderful portraits, uh, comic portraits. Uh, of Jewish mothers. Uh, I teach in often, I teach in, 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 in uh, one of my classes, I teach Portnoy's Complaint. And, you know, I'm not sure that you will find a better comic portrait of, of a mother in this vein, you know, in any literature. But, uh, I, you know, again, it's not my place to be comparative. What I'd really like to know more about, um, as somebody that's coming to this as a, as a new topic, is a little bit more about American Yiddish theatre, if that's okay. Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that um, what I would say about American Yiddish theater is that uh, it starts really at a time, you know, at a time when you have, uh, you know, a first generation 
of uh, Yiddish-speaking Eastern European immigrants. Uh, this is a community that is, you know, that is very poor, uh, that is, you know, that is working very hard, often to, you know, to, to make a living, to bring their families over from Eastern Europe, an immigrant community, who are looking uh, for is a kind of escapism, right? This is happening in the late 19th century. You know, this is an age of theater. There, there is no radio yet. There's no, there's no movies. Um, and theater not only provided sort of this venue for escape, and of course, and for the same kinds of vaudeville-esque entertainments that you could find on the American stage more broadly. Uh, and, you know, many of these, these works are melodramas, many of them are historical epics, many of them, some of them are Shakespeare, like we said before, and some of them are comedy. Uh, and, you know, I think that uh, the, how would I put this? The Yiddish-speaking uh, American audience really was theater crazy. You know, there were there were huge stars, and there were there were drama. There was drama. There was scandal. There was, uh, you know, all sorts of you know crazy fans. Uh, there there was just a tremendous amount of excitement around the theater, and that remained that way for decades uh, until, like in many other ways, sort of the the movies and everything like that, and, and increasing American acculturation, uh, you know, really made the theater a shadow, the theater a shadow of its former self. Um, you know, once uh, the, these these immigrants had kids, the kids were sort of native English speakers. Uh, they were co- very comfortable with American culture. Um, if they went to the Yiddish theater, it would be as a you know as a nostalgic sort of moment, but it, it was really more something that they left behind. So it burned very brightly for a few decades, and then became really a much smaller version of its former self. However, um, you know, there's that stereotype that people use that Jews run Hollywood, and you know, in the early days of Hollywood, essentially they kind of did because. It was those theater people that went and bought into this experiment of, of, of movies. Well, there's no question that many of the major studio heads in that very early days of Hollywood were, were Jewish, right? Uh, and, and I think that, you know, they obviously exercised a great deal of power, uh, you know, in those early days. As Hollywood changed uh, and grew and changed the, you know, the entire, uh, the entire structure uh, changed very profoundly as well. But, uh, you know, there's no question that Jews were formative in many of these mass cultural institutions, including the movies. Um, you know, I think very frequently that is led to some kind of conspiratorial, often supremacist, uh, you know, set of uh, ideas. Uh, and I think those are not warranted, uh, you know. Uh, but, but I think that uh, there's no question historically that, uh, you know, Jews were very, very involved in this business. And again, as I said earlier, that is frequently because of the barriers to entry for other, um, you know, for other kinds of industries. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, this was not, uh, you know, now I think if anyone says, oh, my son-in-law is a, you know, is a producer or a screenwriter or whatever, you know, people are like very, oh, that's really cool, that's very nice. That was not obviously what people thought in the very early, the very earliest days when the industry was just an infant industry. It was low status. No, but uh, if it wasn't for that, I mean, if it wasn't for the Jewish influence, Hollywood would not be what Hollywood is. Well, I think that it's true that if it weren't for the people who created these studios, 
Hollywood would look different. But that's, as we say, that is true of anything historically. If it weren't for the things that happened, things would be different. <laughs> that's a good point. Um, I want to, just a bizarre question, completely, well, it's not off topic because it is about Jewish comedy. How the hell did Jewish phrases like uh, schlemiesel, schlemiesel work its way into Laverne and Shirley? Aren't they Irish and Italian? Well, you know, I, I, if I recall correctly, I mean, I think a lot of the people involved were Jewish. Yes. Know, but I don't know I don't know enough about sort of the, the ins and outs of the actual production. I probably should. But I will say that, you know, another very formative influence uh, on you know, sort of the mainstreaming of Jewish culture into American culture, Jewish comic culture, was Mad Magazine, um, you know, which was just omnipresent reading material for a generation that, you know, would have then grown up to be the kinds of people who were involved with Laverne and Shirley in the 70s, right, but as kids. Uh, and, and Mad Magazine specialized in, you know, in incorporating kind of Yiddish or Yiddish-y, Yiddish-y-sounding materials uh, into the pages. So... Uh, you know, and that was all created by, or it was very largely, I should say all, but very largely Mad Magazine was created by first-generation American Jews. Uh, you know, the, the parents, uh, by, excuse me, the, the children, by and large, of, of immigrants. Uh, and, in, and in fact, someone like Al Jaffe, uh, who, God bless him, you know, is still around, and just recently retired at the age of, I think, 99 or something like that from Mad Magazine, who did those fold-ins. Um, Jaffe was himself from Eastern Europe. He himself was an immigrant. So that, I think, is the DNA, whether that was directly related to Laverne and uh, You know, Mad Magazine was responsible for sort of, you know, getting Americans familiar with that kind of yiddish sound uh, in a certain kind of way. Yeah, it's just so funny that, you know, it's right in the beginning of the show, everybody says it, and I don't think most people even realize what it means. Because <laughs> I, I did it for that. years. No, I'm sure that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, in a lot of times, you know, you hear things and they just kind of go over your head. But, uh, you know, um, I, I, I also think that, um, you know, one of the stories of Jewish culture in America is the story of certain very small aspects of Yiddish, uh, you know, making their way in, in Yiddish language, making their way into sort of the general American discourse. Now, the question I always had, um, and it's kind of a weird philosophical question, that if you attack Christianity, even in comedy, um, you really run the risk of, you know, a lot of pushback, a lot of feedback. I mean, look what happened to the Pythons with Life of Brian, or when the kids in the hall did the Dr. Seuss Bible. Yet, it's always been accepted in Jewish comedy to make fun of Judaism. What, where do you think the, the, the difference lies? Well, again, you know, we're, we're getting to things that are a little beyond my purview, but, uh, because I'm not an expert on Christian comedy. But I would say that I'm not convinced uh, that, that Christian, Christian culture doesn't have its own, uh, you know, set of making fun of Christianity. Uh, you know, you have characters in Shakespeare's plays who are critical. You certainly have in something like Boccaccio's The Decameron. You have a tremendous way of anti-clerical humor. You have mock sermons by people like the Galliards in the medieval period. You know, so there, I think that there is a, a wide 
uh, and deep and long-standing uh, trench of anti-Christian comedy by Christians. Um, I, so I'm not sure that I, I would necessarily, uh, you know, uh, agree with, with, with the premise. I, I do think that in terms of Jewish comedy, you know, there is a comfort with arguing with God, let's put it that way, that traces its way all the way back to the Bible again with Abraham. You know, where God comes down and he says, I'm going to do this, and Abraham says, look, you know, I'm going to destroy Sodom, for example. Right, look, you know, you're saying this, but maybe you should do this. Maybe you should, you know, there's a back and forth. Uh, and that kind of talking back, you know, allows itself a certain kind of flexibility and freedom. But particularly... Uh, under certain circumstances, uh, especially around that, there's a, Jewish, there's a Jewish holiday, Purim, uh, which is sort of a more festive holiday, more like Carnival, which is another good example of where Christianity lets its hair down, like in medieval times. Um, and, you know, it allows for this sort of pushing back uh, in a certain kind of way. But I think it depends. Which reminds me of one of my all-time favorite Jewish jokes from the, uh, the You Don't Have to Be Jewish album. <laughs> where, where uh, you know, the guy dies, goes to heaven, gets to meet God, and he gets to ask God one question, and it's, are Jews the, jo the chosen people? And when God tells him, yes, you are the chosen people, his response is, would you mind choosing someone else for once? It's a great line, and it's actually a line that I don't, I don't know whether it was original, but the, the line from the joke, which is a great joke, comes from one of those Tevye lines in the Shalom Aleichem stories. Um, and so there, I mean, you know, you're talking about pushing back. Tevye is saying a prayer, and in the prayer it says, in the words of the liturgy, thou hast chosen us from all among other nations. And Tevye says, maybe you could go choose someone else, <laughs> right? So, you know, and this is uh, written in the 19th century. It's written in Yiddish. Already Shalom Aleichem is not necessarily traditionally observant, but certainly there were people who read him traditionally and loved him and would not necessarily have taken that as, you know, a reason to burn the book or get out of there. So I think that that speaks to some of this flexibility that you're talking about. It's a great line made even greater when Lou Jacoby says it. <laughs> it you know, that that's... Just realize, bringing that album up is a good point because, you know, that album came out in what? The early 60s? Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember. That sounds, that sounds plausible. Yeah, and there was a follow-up album. There was You Don't Have to Be Jewish, and then there was uh, When You're in Love, The Whole World is Jewish. And this was in-your-face, not-hiding Jewish comedy at all, and it hit the mainstream. Yes, I agree with you that that is something that really happens in the 60s. Right, is that you have these people, you know, in the, in the late 50s, maybe the 60s, you have people like Alan Sherman, you know, you have, you have people like this, right, who really are um, sort of saying this is not just comedy for, you know, a small group of, so to speak, chosen people, right? This is a group, uh, this is comedy for anybody. Uh, and I think America was at a place post-war, you know, where, you know, the, the, you, you have this, uh, these sociologists who are saying, right, there are basically, you know, there are three kinds of Americans. There are Catholics, there are Protestants, there are Jews, 
you know, Muslims and Buddhists and what have you might want to have a word with that, right? But it's a, this is this with the argument. But the Jews were being uh, sort of included as uh, a, a group in America that had to be sort of at least taken note of, and that therefore their their comedy, you know, was was open to everybody. It was accessible. Yeah, and it was universal comedy. Um, you know, and then you had Lenny Bruce come in and kick the door down and get in everybody's face about not just Judaism, but hypocrisy in all religion and in all aspects of life. But yes, uh, it's all around that time, right, where you you know you have him really, you know, coming in and, and, and he's saying, you know, and he was hugely influential in saying, look, I'm Jewish. Jewishness is not only a part of who I am, right, but it's a part of my act. Um, and, you know, I'm, you know, and, 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 uh, and as a result, I'm going to make this part of my comedy, my, this personal Jewish aspect of my life. Uh, and, you know, this was one of the reasons why Bruce was so influential, not just on Jews, as you're saying, but on non-Jews. Everyone could take that lesson and say, you know, uh, this is part of my act, too. I'm black, someone could say, right? And I listen to Lenny Bruce, and I get inspiration from that. I'm Hispanic. Uh, I, you know, uh, Joan Rivers says that Lenny Bruce was extraordinarily influential on her because, you know, she was able, you know, she learned she could take kind of her experiences as a woman and make them part of her act uh, and, and, you know, part of her routines. And that was hugely important to, to the history of 20th century comedy. You know, another thing about Bruce that I always thought was amazing was how he explained being Jewish to non-Jews in often very bizarre ways. You know, complaining mm-hmm. that Jews aren't popular because, you know, your God's been in more movies. He's <laughs> easier to put in a film. <laughs> And, uh, you know, y'all walk around with little, you know, effigies of your Lord on there. All we have is the mezuzah. Right. Well, one of the amazing things about what Bruce tried to do, or what Bruce's efforts were in this respect, and I agree with you that it's very good, is that, you know, Bruce was so interested in kind of presenting Jewishness as part of himself, which was to say, as being this kind of hip, more, you know, hip thing. It was kind of cool. Because it was, it was not for everybody. It wasn't everybody's bag, right? It was hip. Uh, and I think that, you know, that also was something that, that intrigued people, right, was to say that, uh, you know, in that famous um, routine of his in which he divides the world into Jewish and Goyish and Gentile, <laughs> right? Love that bit. Right, it's very famous. Right, well, a great routine. Right, what he's saying is, you know, all the stuff that's much kind of cooler that's Jewish stuff. And the stuff that seems kind of white bread, you know, including white bread, right, that's that's Gentile stuff. And that, as you were sort of implying before, that is a really, you know, remarkable and provocative uh, approach for a minority culture to be able to say, right? And that allowed, you know, in America, that was one of the gifts of America was, you know, that Bruce could say those things. And although he was arrested many times, he was not arrested for saying that kind of thing. Right, he was arrested for other stuff, but he was not arrested for saying, "Well, Jews are hip and Gentiles are square," which is essentially what he one of the arguments he was making. No, and, and he also, you know, really played up to the jazz crowd and the jazz musicians and the jazz bands. It's almost like he's like, "Hey, the blacks and the Jews, we're the same. Let's stick together. We're the hip ones. Let's educate the people that this is where it's at." 
And this is in the 50s. I mean, the balls it took to do that were incredible. Yeah, no, I think that that's, I mean, he was very much of this playing to the band, you know, you know, trying to kind of feel, you know, in this group, right? I, I think you're, I think you're right about that. Uh, and I do think that, it, you know, obviously he was taking risks uh, and he continued to take those, those risks, including the risks of the kind of language that he was willing to use and uh, the kinds of topics that he was willing to, to do. And if you look at, you know, the, the lists of the sick comics, quote-unquote sick, that was the term they used in the late 50s, you know, the vast majority of them are Jewish. Not all of them by any stretch, but the vast majority of them are Jews. Um, Time Magazine has some article about that point. I can't remember what it's called. It's in my book. Uh, and, you know, I think 85% of them are, are Jewish, of the, the new kind of taboo-breaking comedians. You know, and, and it's funny because I'm one of the people who believes that it really wasn't the language that got Lenny in so much trouble. It was his attack on suburban white Christian America. Um, you know, the, the bits he would do about the Catholic Church were really outrageous at the time. The bits he would do about segregation were outrageous at the time. And I think that's why he became more of a target. And I think part of that was because he was Jewish. He's one of them. And he was tired. I think that's not impossible. I think that's not impossible at all. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of this was also, and this is another way kind of saying a similar thing to what you're saying, you know, his refusal to be cowed by the forces of American authority, right, is that, you know, clearly this guy, and you could say this Jew, right, this Jewish guy, he was not getting the message. You know, the police kept on coming. And, you know, it was clear that he was, bad news as uh, you can't see but i'm making air quotes in my in my you know in front of my phone um you know and that he should have gotten the message and this guy refused to get with it right he refused to get the message uh and that made him a threat uh and i think a lot of that is part of this sort of not allowing him not not you know uh permitting himself whatever you want to say to be subject to the kind of general and at that point that meant generally gentile authority yeah and it's you know, that's one of the classic, um, when you think about Jewish comedy now, you think about that rebellious nature, even though it really wasn't always that until Lenny. Um, and even his yeah. contemporaries at the time, you know, they were doing very adult material, but to their to their crowd. Um, you know, a lot of the Borscht Belt comics were not the cleanest people. Right, but well, that is certainly true. Um no, I think that I think that's right. I mean, I think that you know Bruce was very interested in you know he was not he was interested in doing the material that he wanted to do. He understood that that would mean that he would not be you know um, playing Ed Sullivan every night or playing gigantic halls in Vegas. You know, but he was he wanted to do uh, his comedy, and he you know of course he got in a certain kind of trouble for it too. No, he got in a lot of trouble for it. Yeah. Now, I, I'm also a huge fan of the Borscht Belt comics, which, sadly, there are so few left. Um, yeah, no, that's true. I'm thinking who's left. I think Shecky Green's left. I, I, I think that's right. I, but it is hard to remember who's alive and who's not. And, you know, they became so influential. What was the point where they went from being... Just this Borscht Belt, you know, comedy, te- 
you know, community in these uh, Jewish um, vacation spots to where they became national celebrities. I mean, was it Vegas exploding or was it television variety? I mean, what turned them mainstream? I think you, I think, you know, you said both the answers to that. I think, I think <laughs> you know, you're 100% right. I think it's that combination of, you know, uh, of television and then sort of these, you know, these massive entertainment, particularly Las Vegas, uh, that just, that were, you know, new and that allowed for this kind of, you know, this, this much higher profile kind of experience. But, you know, and television, you know, works perfectly in this way because it starts off, you know, in the coasts and, you know, in, in major urban centers uh, and then sort of spreads more widely. So the first audiences for television are much, demographically speaking, are much more Jewish than if you flip the switch and television was in every American household. Uh, and that that allowed for people to say we're programming television. Oh, you know the, the, these people from the boys' club probably will be known. They'll have some appeal. You know, and by the time that it expanded, you know there were already fixtures on some of these circuits. Um, and so you know you really had this uh, you know this remarkable as you're saying uh, thing where I think Steve Allen, who of course was not Jewish, Steve Allen wrote this book in the '70s, and he said at that point something like 75 to 80 percent of American comedians are Jewish. Um, you know, obviously, I, I couldn't begin to guess at what the number is now, but it's much lower. But then, you know, that was that was a good twenty-five years later, because, you know, and still the numbers were that high. Yeah, and uh, speaking of Lenny's Jewish and Goyish, I, I always found it funny that you're right. When television stopped being coastal and went to full mainstream America, you know, the kind of hip comedy things didn't play well. And Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows went off the air because of, oh, I even hate to say it, Lawrence Welk. Right. I, you, that's exactly, I mean, you, know, you couldn't ask for a better symbol than that, right? Uh, of Sid Caesar being, and, you know, and, and Sid Caesar being replaced by Lawrence Welk. And, you know, the, the writers, as, as you know, swore up and down that this was the reason that, it was, that television expanded that it became a kind of place where the kind of more cosmopolitan comedy, for lack of a better phrase, you know, that they really specialized in. I mean, these were guys who were making fun of neorealist Italian cinema, you know, on their on their show. Um, that they that it was felt that that this was not going to play, uh, quite literally, going to play in Peoria, right? Uh, and so, you know, it went off the air that way. Uh, Bruce, as I think you know, has a very famous and fun routine. Uh, about a kind of jazz hipster who's strung out on heroin being interviewed by Lawrence Welk. <laughs> uh, and, and the point that, like, you know, well, you know, you know, and he's speaking, the, the hipster that is speaking, you know, you know, slang, he's saying, you want some bread, you know, or give me some bread, excuse me, give me some bread. And he's, you know, Welk's like, you want a sandwich? I don't understand. Um, and, you know, that's exactly what we're saying about this, this encounter between jazz slash Jewish and band leader slash Goyish, you know, is summed up in, in, in one routine. Oh, and Lawrence Welk is so Goyish. But every person associated with Sid Caesar did pretty well for themselves when that show was over. Yes, well, that is that is for sure. I mean, you know, drawing together a line, I'm writing now, a, I'm writing a, a Jewish biography of Mel Brooks, uh, and, you know, Brooks would say, he would say, like, the guy who took notes 
in the Caesar writing room. The guy who took notes, you know, who manned the typewriter, you know, went on to write Fiddler on the Roof. Like, that's what the level of talent was. Um, and, it's, it, you know, it was really incredible. Now, you're writing uh, the bi- uh, biography on Mel Brooks now. Yes, uh, that's, one of, uh, that's one of the things I'm writing now. Is that Jew- They call them Jewish biographies. Yale University Press has the series called Jewish Lives, and I'm writing the Mel Brooks one, which is a lot of fun. You have imagine. you been in contact with him? You know, I haven't. I haven't. I really, my wife tells me that, I, you know, I really should get on that before it's too late. But I want to make sure uh, I have something, you know, to ask him that he hasn't been asked a uh, hundred times before, which is hard when, you know, you, you're dealing with someone who's been as famous for as long as uh, Brooks has. Well, I need you, I need to ask a personal favor now. If you do talk to him, please express not only mine, but the world's condolences for Carl Reiner. I, I certainly will. Yes, it was a you know it was a big I mean it was a big loss for the world as you say, but it was also a, you know of course an incalculable loss for him. Yeah, I don't know if Lauren, do you uh, do you know about Carol Reiner and uh, Mel Brooks' relationship? No, I don't. No. They had been best friends since the early fifties, and. As they grew up and grew older and became very old men together, they were still having dinner with each other several times a week into their 90s. They were inseparable best friends their whole lives. Oh, it's true. It was really, it's a beautiful, it, it is, it was, it is a beautiful story, you know, and so it's a it really condolences. So, yeah, we're approaching that hour, Mark, so it's about time to get going, but we know you're working on the book about Mel. Any other projects in the work that you might want to come back on and discuss in the future? Uh, I would love to come back on and talk Mel Brooks with you guys. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I think that uh, uh, right now that's the main project. There are some other things in the hopper, but uh, uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen with them yet, but I will let you know when I, when, when I know. All right. Jeremy Dauber, Professor Jeremy Dauber, Jewish Comedy, A Serious History. I'm going to post a link in the description, folks. If you haven't read this book, you must read it if you're a fan of comedy. Even if you're not a fan of comedy, you should read it anyway because he's a hell of a good guy and you should buy his book. Uh, I want to thank you again for joining us and I hope we can talk soon. I'd love that. It was a real pleasure to talk to both of you. Thank you so, so much thank for having me. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Have a great night. Bye. You too. Great night, guys. Oh, God, that was so much fun. What did you think, Lauren? It was very interesting, yes. I think I'm going to have to learn more about Jewish comedy. Oh, we're going to teach you so much about Jewish comedy. Yes, it's just, I don't know why people would view British comedy as anti-establishment, though. It's not very anti-establishment. I think it's, in America, we view it that way, because a lot of the British comedy that became big in America were the Pythons and uh, the Rowan Atkinsons, Black Adder, primarily. That's not anti-establishment. That's, well, Monty Python, it's very difficult to think of them as purely British because one of their members is American. Yeah, but... uh, So they're more international. (laughs) But... I, they're more surrealist to us. I agree. I agree. But so what, what you were, what we you were t- seeing was them mocking British society so much. But that's satire. Yes, I agree. We're fine with that. 
We're fine with that because, you know, it's we're very self-deprecating. Which and, is beautiful. Uh, that's why I love British comedy. And Blackadder, it wasn't so much making fun of the institutions of the past or the monarchy. It was more... It's very much, I think it's very much the way history is taught in school. It's a story rather than the facts in some cases. But we are definitely going to get you uh, get you caught up on Jewish comedy. Well, I've seen some of the Marx Brothers films. Duck Soup is a favorite. Oh, Duck Soup is one of the greatest films of all time. Comedy, non-comedy, anything... It is in my top five favorite film list. I'm a Marx Brotherhood member. I mean, I am just... <laughs> You've got all of their autographs. I do. I do have all their autographs. Um, he says as he takes them off the wall and gets ready to open a safe deposit box. Because <laughs> <yeah. laughs> I've uh, just announced that to the audience. That's uh, okay. I'm proud of that. <laughs> yeah, 32 Americans, countries. Uh, I love that he pointed out that American comedy and Jewish comedy are almost synonymous now because we really did uh, adopt the Jewish comedy. I mean, look at, you know, Mel Brooks is a mainstream comedy filmmaker in America. And that's yes, pure Jewish comedy. Yeah, they're amazing films. They are and he gets, away, he gets away with it as well because he's Jewish. Exactly. <laughs> If you or I tried to uh, make Blazing Saddles, for example, we'd be arrested. Well, he wouldn't be able to make Blazing Saddles now. Yes, he could. He's Mel Brooks. No, even he couldn't now. I disagree. I think he's magic. Well, he might be magic, but <laughs> he could probably still get away with half of History of the World Part 1. Or the producers. Producers he might be able to get away with. <laughs> oh, Lauren. <laughs> I feel so bad that it's so late there for you. That's all right. I'm not working. Well, <laughs> you know what I think is hilarious, other than Jewish comedy? What? That tonight we just did this wonderful episode about the history of Jewish comedy, and tomorrow we're going to be talking about the New Orleans axe murderer. <laughs> <laughs> It's your fault. You put the shows. Oh, what is wrong with us? No, what is wrong with you? I don't I'm know. But I think... You book, you book the shows. You did this to yourself. Like, think... like when you were complaining about when we had four shows in a week, and I was like, Brian, you booked them. Yeah, I, you know, I have OCD. It's okay. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, what's wrong with us? I'm like, there's nothing wrong with me, Brian. I don't ask every guest. Is Pluto a planet? Notice I didn't ask him. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> yes, he dodged a bullet there. Because I was trying to look up how to say it in Yiddish, and I couldn't figure it out. I think it was very. I think it was very good that he had to leave us at that point because I think it was one of the next questions that was going to come out of your mouth. It was. Well, what I'm going to do now is get ready to sign off. And, uh, cause we're going to be talking tomorrow too about. You talk every day, Brian. Axe murder. The <laughs> only one I know very well is the Villisca axe murder. Oh, well, prepare yourself. 
the New Orleans ex-murder is about ex-murder and jazz. Jazzy ex-murdering. Yeah. But on that note, it's about time to say goodnight, Gracie. So from Brian in New York. And from Lauren in Swansea. Good night. Good night. He should have also been kicked in the balls for spitting at someone.